the Bible, God's Word, is in many respects a book of judgment. From the opening chapters to the closing chapters, we find accounts of judgment, God's judgment. In Genesis 1 and 2, after He created Adam and Eve to be His image bearers, to be the progenitors of this race, when they rebelled against Him, He judged them. He removed them from the Garden of Eden. You read the book of Revelation, and what you see are displays of God's judgment that will be poured out on all who rebel against Him in the vindication of the honor and the glory and the victory of His Son, Jesus Christ. It's judgment. So in one sense, as we live in this world, thinking about God, reading the Bible, wanting to understand our lives in the light of what God's taught us in the Bible, we should think about judgment. We should think that judgment is coming because the Bible says that indeed it does come. God's judgment always comes in response to sin. We experience temporal judgments here in this life, but there is eternal judgment beyond this life where God's wrath will be poured out upon sin forever against all who have lived and died in rebellion to Him. The Bible teaches us this judgment. Some people don't want to think about judgment and they don't think about it because they don't think about sin. And they don't want to believe that they have sinned. Most people today will say, well sure, I'm not perfect. But whenever you start talking about sin in the way the Bible talks about sin, as being rebellion against our Creator, resulting in enmity between God and us, so that we are His enemies because of sin. And He is set against us as our enemy because of sin. People don't like to think about that. They don't want to believe that that is true, that they've really sinned against God. And yet the Bible says it's true of every one of us. It's true of all of us in this room. It's true of everybody you know. We've all sinned, and because we've all sinned, we are all liable to that judgment of God against sin. Last week, in our study of the book of Romans, we came to verses 1 through 11 of chapter 2, in which Paul sets forth the case there that as all have sinned and all are guilty before God without excuse, that God will judge, and that a day of wrath is coming when that judgment will be manifested. Today, we want to continue in the Apostle Paul's line of thinking by taking up where we stopped last week at Romans chapter 2, verse 12, and we'll go all the way down through verse 16, in which Paul furthers the argument that this judgment of God that is coming will be for everyone, and it will be fairly executed. It will be executed on everyone because everyone has sinned. And it will be executed without partiality because in God there is no partiality. So if you've not already done so, let me encourage you to take a copy of God's Word and open to Romans chapter 2. Romans chapter 2. And we're going to start in verse 12 and go all the way down through verse 16 
for our text this morning. If you're using one of the Bibles provided, you'll see it on page 940. 940. So get a copy of Scripture in front of you because I just want to walk us through these words to see what it is God is saying to us today as we have already prayed and as we have sung that He would speak to us. Hear the Word of God from Romans chapter 2 beginning in verse 12. The Apostle Paul writes, For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law, and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them on that day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. Everyone will be fairly judged by God because everyone has sinned against God. That's Paul's point in these verses. In one sense, he's simply reiterating what he's already written to us in verses 1 through 11. Paul, in this section of his letter, is arguing for the universality of sin and therefore the universality of judgment against sin, the consequences of sin being death enmity against God, putting us in a position where God's wrath hangs over us until there's reconciliation between the sinner and his creator. Some people have lots of access to the Bible and they know these things because they've heard these stories. They've read the scriptures. But other people don't have much access to the Bible like the Bakhtiari people and yet this passage of scripture says that they too will be judged. How can this be? How can God fairly judge the Bakhtiari people in Iran and the people sitting in this room in Cape Coral? How can He do that? I mean, they don't know. They don't have Bibles. Some in this room have grown up in homes with multiple Bibles. Probably most, if not all of us here today, have Bibles upon Bibles. Available to us, you probably have Bibles in your pocket through your smartphone. So how can God hold us accountable in the same way that He would hold the Bakhtiari people in Iran accountable? How can He judge us the same way? Well, our text this morning addresses these questions. And Paul says, yes, all will be judged. And they will be judged fairly. They will be judged because they've sinned against God. Notice what verse 16 says. How Paul here is pointing forward to a coming day of judgment. A day that will happen. It's it's almost like it's a a refrain or a pointing back to what he's already written in verse 5 that we looked at last week. He says, because of your hard and impenitent heart, you're storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. So what Paul is writing about in this portion of his letter is is instruction to help us think rightly about that coming day of judgment. 
the fact that there is a day that's out there that we're getting closer to every day when Christ will return, when history as we know it will be wrapped up and God will judge every person in the world. It's a sobering thought. I've mentioned in previous studies how in this letter to the Roman church, Paul uses very tight logic, intricate logic. He uses very forceful arguments in order to press his case so that we can't skirt around it and we're not likely to misunderstand it. At times, I get the impression that, that Paul's almost taking the posture of a prosecuting attorney and that he's going to make his case, he's going to submit his arguments so that we will simply have to back up and say, yeah, case proved. We see that today in the verses that are before us in the way that the apostle builds upon what he has just written in verses 1 through 11. Last week, we concluded by looking at verses 6 through 11, where the apostle Paul makes the argument that God will judge everyone without partiality. He summarizes that point in verse 11. Do you see that? For God shows no partiality. And then our text today builds upon that. Do you see the first word in our text, that little word for? For. This indicates the connection between God's impartiality and what he's about to write. So what he's about to give us in verses 12 through 16 is intimately connected to the fact that God shows no partiality. What Paul is doing is explaining how God can judge all people while remaining impartial. How can God be impartial in executing judgment against people who had all kinds of religious opportunities and privileges and people who have never even seen a Bible, never even heard that Jesus Christ has come into the world. Paul makes his argument by setting forth three points. I want to call them out to you, call your attention to them, and then we'll work our way through them. He says, first of all, that some people sin under the law. Some people sin under the law. Secondly, he says, some people sin without the law. And then thirdly, he says, God will judge all people because of sin. How can God fairly judge all people in the world? Because He's going to judge everybody, not on the basis of what they have or don't have, access they've had or access they've not had. He's going to judge all people on the basis of sin, and everybody sinned. Some have sinned with great opportunities in front of them. Access. Some have sinned without those opportunities and access. But all have sinned. And because all have sinned, God will judge all. Well, Paul divides people into these two broad categories to make this point. Those under the law, those without the law. So let's look at these three main forces of argument that he uses to build his case. First, in verse 12, right at the end of verse 12, he says, All who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. Some sin under the law. Some people sin under the law. And those who have had access to God's law, God's revelation, will be judged on the basis of that revelation to which they have had access. Specifically, Paul's referring to the Jews of his own day. The people 
to whom God had entrusted His commandments, entrusted the Old Testament Scriptures, had sent the prophets, had given His covenants to, had established His worship among with the synagogue and the temple. These Jews knew the law. They knew that the law had been revealed to them, handed to them from Moses, and it was God's Word. In fact, they took great pride throughout the generations in being God's chosen people who had so many blessings and privileges entrusted to them. However, look at verse 13. Paul says, yes, if you've had the law, you'll be judged by that law, but it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God. It's not enough to possess the law. In Paul's day, reading was a professional skill. And so most people who heard, most of the Jews who had access to God's revelation, had that access by having it read to them. They would know the law because the law had been read to them. They would know of God's promises because those promises had been communicated to them, read to them by the scribes and those who were spiritual leaders who were skilled in being able to read God's written word. Paul says, hearing it isn't enough. Because they had access to God's commandments, they had access to the prophets, they had access to the promises, very often the Jews would be tempted to feel superior to others. We see this in the way even the New Testament speaks of relationship between Jews and Gentiles. The Jews would look down on the Gentiles. They were unclean because they were not separated to God. They were ignorant and foolish because they did not have wisdom from God handed down to them. And in feeling superior to others, they felt very secure with God. I mean, after all, they were His people. After all, He'd spoken to them. After all, they had access to His revealed will. Well, throughout history, this was an ongoing temptation with God's people. Where they would just think everything's okay because they have the temple. Or they have the prophets. Or they have the commandments. We're God's people. We see in Psalm number 50 how God addresses this type of faulty thinking. That simply because you have His commandments and you know His commandments, that somehow you're okay with Him. Let me just read to you a few verses from Psalm number 50. As Asaph writes this down under the inspiration of God's Spirit, to God's people. Psalm 50 verse 16, God says to His people, What right have you to recite my statutes or take my covenant on your lips? He'd revealed His statutes to them. He'd given them His law. He'd given them His covenants. And they recited them. They heard them and they could quote them. <laughs> and He is about to speak words of judgment to them. He says, for you hate discipline and you cast my words behind you. In other words, yeah, you hear. You hear my word read. You can recite what my word is. But whenever it comes to practical living, it's like you just take my word and put it behind your back and you live however you want to. If you see a thief, you're pleased with him. What about the commandment that says you shall not steal? They know it. But they go along with thieves. You keep company with adulterers. What about the commandment that says you shall not commit adultery? 
They know it. They have it. He goes on, he says, You give your mouth free reign for evil. Your tongue frames deceit. You sit and speak against your brother. You slander your own mother's son. These things you have done, and I have been silent. You thought I was like one of yourselves. So they did it. They disobeyed God's commandments, all the while reciting God's commandments. They talked about God revealing himself to them. And they could even recite the promises that he had made to them. But when it came to daily living, it didn't make any difference. And because God didn't kill them instantly, all the time, God says, you began to think I was like you. You began to think that it was okay to just hear my commandments. Just have access to my revealed will and not to live that way. He says, you thought I was one like yourself, but now I rebuke you and lay the charge before you. Mark this then, you who forget God, lest I tear you apart and there be none to deliver. The one who offers thanksgiving as his sacrifice glorifies me. To the one who orders his way rightly, I will show the salvation of God. Those who sin under the law will be judged by that law. They had access. They had great privileges, great opportunities. Well, all of that will work against them in the day of judgment if they are only hearing the law and not doing God's commandments. The latter part of verse 13, Paul goes on, he says, it's not the hearer of the law who will be justified, but the doers of the law will be justified. The doers of the law. Now, is Paul here saying that if you do good enough, God will accept you? Is he saying that if you do the commandments, if you live according to the commandments, then God will justify you? He's not saying that. We looked at that partially last week. We're going to see it throughout this letter that the only way anybody gets justified before God is by His grace that comes to us, enabling us by faith to trust the provision of salvation in His Son. But those who have faith in His Son will be people who live differently. Who are doers of the law. There are two ways that this phrase in verse 13 can be taken, have been taken over most of the last four to five hundred years. One is that it is seen as a hypothetical statement that Paul is simply saying that only perfect obedience warrants God's declaring a, perp- a person righteous. Well, and that certainly is true. So if you were to ask me, Pastor Tom, if somebody were to ever keep God's commandments perfectly from A to Z, from the first breath to last breath, would that person be righteous in God's sight? I would say yes. Absolutely. The reality is nobody has done that except Jesus. So nobody you know, you've grown up with, that you can count as a family member or friend has done that. But theoretically, that's how righteousness Human righteousness is achieved. It's through the obedience of God's commandments. Well, some, are, some people think, well, this is just what Paul's saying here. He's just making a theoretical point that it's only complete obedience to the commandments that will cause a person to be justified in God's sight. I don't think that's his point. Rather, I think what Paul is doing is his second 
way that most interpreters have looked at this is that he's making a summary statement of what he's already written. That he's kind of summarizing what he said in verses 6, 7, and 10 from our study last week. He's not saying that doing the law will somehow earn merit with God and earn righteousness with God, but rather he is saying that those who are right with God will live lawful lives. We are justified by God's grace through faith plus nothing. But the faith that justifies a person works. It results in a life that seeks to live obediently to God's commandments. I'm not going to go through all the implications of that again today. I did that last week. But what this means is the person who says, I'm justified and lives disobedient to God's commandments is in serious trouble. He's probably self-deceived because he thinks that he has faith and that he's okay with God and yet he's not living in accordance with God's will. And Paul here in verse 13 makes that crystal clear, doesn't he? It's not the people that say they have God's law or that possess God's law. It's the doers of the law who are justified. Why? Because they do the law? No, because they know Jesus Christ and they, knowing Jesus Christ, they seek to live in conformity with God's commandments. And so... On that day of judgment, God can judge us by our works, not for our works. Oh, you did enough, so I'm going to receive you. But by our works. Look at the works. That person's been justified by faith in my son. That's his point here. It's doers of the law who will be justified. It's a great blessing to have access to the Bible. It's incredible to grow up in a home where you never hear Jesus' name taken as a blasphemy, as a curse word. But where that name's honored and where the Word of God is read and where prayers are offered up to God, those are incredible blessings. It's a blessing to live in a country where we have ready access to the Bible in our own heart languages. To have access to churches like this and gatherings like this where we're not worried about some government official breaking down the doors and telling us that we have to, to all leave or, or something worse than that. We have freedoms. We have access to the Bible. Those are incredible blessings of God. But make no mistake, those blessings in and of themselves will not Make a person right with God. Children, young people, I praise God that you're being raised in homes where you're being taught the Bible. Many of you are being catechized so that you're being taught to think about questions regarding God, regarding yourself, regarding sin, and you're being taught to give biblical answers to that. You're being brought to these types of meetings in worship where you're hearing the Bible taught. You may go to Sunday school class where you have teachers who love you that are teaching you the Bible. Those are incredible blessings. Some of you have grown up with those blessings. Don't be deceived. Those blessings and your access to them, they're not enough. It's not enough. And on the day of judgment, God is not going to, to look at you and say, oh, well, you grew up in Grace Baptist Church. Okay. You heard sermons preached. 
You read the whole Bible through. You memorized your whole catechism. It's not the hearers of the law who will be justified. It's the doers of the law. And if you're not seeking to live in conformity with God's revealed will, if that's a take it or leave it thing with you, then you need to hear what the Word is saying to you today. That the very blessings that God showered upon you on the day of judgment, if you've not taken those blessings and complied with what God says and turned from your sin and entrusted yourself to Jesus so that you learn to love His law and live according to His law, those blessings will wind up being the occasions by which God judges you. You will know. You will understand far more than the Bakhtiari people will. That what God says to you on that horrible day will be just. Will be right. You need to come to Christ. You need to believe the things that He has given to you. Brothers and sisters, we need to guard against being mere hearers. But asking God always to make us doers. Children, young people, you learn the Bible, you read the Bible, you go to Sunday school, you come to a service like this and you hear sermons. Pray that God will give you faith. That God will help you believe. Help you to live on the basis of what His Word actually says. You remember what James teaches us in James chapter 1? He says, be doers of the Word, not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the Word and not a doer, he's like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. He looks at himself and goes away at once and forgets what he was like. Kids, can you imagine that? Can you imagine looking in a mirror and you, you fix up your hair and you, you make sure you look the way you want to look and you walk outside and you think, Man, I can't remember what I look like. <laughs> I don't remember what people see when they look at my face, they look at my body. James says that's the way it is with people who hear God's Word, but they don't do it. They're satisfied to come to services like this and listen to preaching, but they're really not that interested in trying to live according to what the Word says. You know, the Sermon on the Mount is a wonderful sermon, Matthew 5, 6, and 7, those chapters. Jesus ends that sermon by making this very point. Did you know that? He, he contrasts Two different kinds of people. The person who hears his words that he's taught and doesn't do them. Jesus said that guy is like a man who builds his house on sand. And when the wind comes and the rains come and the waters flood, you know what happens to that house? It's destroyed. But the person who listens to the words of Jesus and does them, says, okay, this is what God is saying to me. This is how I must respond. I must stake my life on this. He says, that person is like the one who builds his house on a rock. Solid foundation. The rain comes, the wind comes, the floods come up, and that house stands. Jesus is talking about judgment. He's talking about the day of judgment. We who have received his word will be judged on the basis 
of His Word. So brothers and sisters, young people, children, don't be foolish. Don't be tricked into thinking that because you have been around spiritual truth and God has taught you spiritual truth and you even know spiritual truth, that you're okay with God. It's not the hearers of the law that will be justified, but the doers of the law. Well, what about people who don't even know God's commandments? They don't know the Bible. They don't know that there is a Bible. How's God going to fairly judge those people? What about them? Well, Paul addresses them as well. He does this in verse 12, the first part, and then in verses 14 and 15. Some people sin under the law. Secondly, some people sin without the law. Look at verse 12. For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. Now this is an interesting statement. Those who sin without the law. Who in the world is that? How can you sin without the law? I mean, after all, isn't sin defined by John in 1 John as lawlessness? Doesn't Paul say in chapter 4, verse 15, just a page over, that where there is no law, there is no transgression? So how can people sin and be held accountable for sin if they don't have God's law? Well, Paul makes plain what he's talking about here when he speaks of law. He's not talking about being completely ignorant of what God requires. He's talking about law that has been revealed and handed down in its specially revealed form. He's talking about what would summarize as the Ten Commandments. He's talking about his written word. And we know this is what he means because Paul further distinguishes these people who sin without the law as Gentiles, if you look down in verse 14, Gentiles who do not have the law. He's talking about people without special revelation of God in the Bible. But do you notice what Paul says about them? Look again in verse 12. Such people, all who have sinned without the law, like the Gentiles of his day, will also perish without the law. Perish. That word is used for eternal loss and punishment. It's used as language of judgment that comes to those whom God will separate from His people and consign to eternity of paying for their own sin. Those who sin without the law will perish without the law. Why? Why will they perish without the law? Why will they be held accountable for sinning against God when they didn't have the revelation of God's law made accessible to them? That's the question. Well, they will perish without the law because they have sinned against the knowledge of the law that they do have. That they do have. Look at this. Verse 14, he says that Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires. They do what the law requires. This demonstrates that such people who do not have access to the written revelation of God are not completely lawless. They're not without some knowledge 
of God's revealed will. He goes on, he says, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. So the people who have no access to special revelation from God, still at times, do what the law requires. You see this, don't you? With people who make no profession of any kind of relationship with God, who nevertheless have a standard, a code of right and wrong. We see it in the Bible. The story of Abraham and Sarah as they're going to the promised land in Genesis chapter 20. They come to the land of Gerar and King Abimelech is there and he sees Sarah, Abraham's wife, and and he noticed she's beautiful. And Abraham, the man of faith, suddenly has a little crisis of faith. He's a coward at this point. He says, she's my sister. And so Abimelech takes her. He says, I'm, I'm going to have her for my own wife. And in the early verses of that chapter, you read this, and God appears to King Abimelech in a dream. I love the way the ESV says it. He says, oh, King, you're a dead man. <laughs> you're a dead man because you've taken another man's wife. And Abimelech says, I didn't know. I didn't know she was his wife. In fact, listen to what Abimelech said in Genesis 20, verse 4. Now, Abimelech had not approached her, so he said, Lord, will you kill an innocent people? Did he not say himself to me, she's my sister? And she herself said, he's my brother. In the integrity of my heart and the innocence of my hands, I have done this. Where did Abimelech get that idea? Ten Commandments hadn't even been written yet. Where did he get the idea that it's wrong to commit adultery with another man's wife? Where did he get the idea it's wrong to have another woman that's not his wife? He had that idea because he says, I'm innocent. I was misled by Abraham. Well, it's not only by special revelation that God makes known what is right. Some things are very clear about what's right and what's wrong by natural revelation. As Paul explains in verse 15. In verse 15, he sets up a, a threefold witness against those who are without law. Those like Abimelech. Those like the Bakhtiari people. Those who do not have access to God's written word. Well, what is this threefold witness against them by which they will be held accountable on the day of judgment. First is, the work of the law is written on their hearts. Do you see that? The work of the law is written on their hearts. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts while their conscience also bears witness and their conflicting thoughts accuse and even excuse them. What law is Paul referring to here when he says the work of the law is written on their hearts. It's God's moral law. It's God's eternal law. Revelation of what's right, what's wrong. What's always been right, what's always been wrong. That God made known in creation. That God wrote upon Adam and Eve's hearts when He created them in His image. And that He summarized then later when He inscribed those tablets of stone on Mount Sinai. This is a very significant point of what it means to be created in God's image. God is righteous. Those Ten Commandments are a summary of what is righteous. And His commandments are a transcript of His character. 
And if a creature is made in the image of this righteous God, then he inevitably is created with a sense of what is right and what is wrong. When we are made as image bearers of God, He imprints His nature upon us. And Granted, sin has come and wrecked that imprint so that it's like having a, a, a beautiful mirror that is cracked. Well, the image isn't what it's supposed to be, but there's still enough there for it to be recognizable. So even fallen human nature retains some knowledge of God and God's righteousness. We've already seen Paul make this same claim in a different way in verses 18 through 20 of chapter 1. In that portion of the letter, just look back over to it. Just turn the page. Look at it again as Paul here is arguing how nobody will have an excuse before God. He says, the wrath of God, in verse 18 of chapter 1, is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be made What can be known about God is plain to them. You see that? Plain to them. Because God has shown it to them. For His invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. God created us in His image. He put us in a world that He created that has His fingerprints all over it. And even those who do not have special revelation have the work of God's law that reflects His righteousness on their own hearts. Even after sin, there's still the remnants of that that make people accountable. So the first witness against those who have no access to the written revelation of God's will is that the work of God's law is written on their hearts. The second witness is this. Their consciences bear witness against them. Your conscience is your internal judgment. It is that capacity that you have to make decisions about right and wrong and good and bad. And your conscience can serve you very well to the degree that it is properly instructed. And the Bible talks about consciences that get seared so that it's indifferent to proper instruction. But brothers and sisters, this is vital to us in a day of subjectivity when we are constantly encouraged to follow our hearts, to do what seems right to us. Your conscience can be helpful only to the degree that it is instructed by God's Word. So if your conscience is more and more being brought into alignment with what God says is right and good and true, and what God says is wrong and bad and false, well then your conscience will become a great ally to you as you're seeking to discern how you should live, what you should do, decisions that you should take. But if your conscience is increasingly informed by your own traditions, by your own predilections or preferences by the world's values well then you'll be able to go along and do things that may be completely contrary to what God says and have no qualms about it it might even feel good about well I don't have any conscience about this and that could be a true statement But it could also be true that you should have a conscience problem were your conscience more accurately taught by God's Word. 
And so Paul here speaks of the conscience as a witness against those who do not have God's written revelation because even in people who know nothing about God, nothing of His truth, there are nevertheless moments when their consciences feel violated and their consciences feel vindicated. But in those moments, their conscience is reflecting things that are right that ought to be done that they don't do. Things that are wrong that ought not to be done that they do. And so their consciences are called into the witness stand to bear witness against them as sinners before God. The third witness that he mentions here flows out of the conscience. It's their thoughts. Their thoughts that both accuse them on the one hand one day and then excuse them on the other day. This is a reference to the mental capacity that we all possess. Perhaps it's a particular reference to the capacity to remember and the fact that we reflect upon our thoughts, our ideas, our decisions, our values, our judgments. And at times, those reflections leave us feeling guilty. Shouldn't have done that. Shouldn't have said that. And at other times, they leave us feeling very fulfilled. That was right. That was a good call. That was something that was proper. I like the way John Piper has summarized this in his own reflections on this passage. He says, All human beings have the moral law of God stamped on their heart. Every human soul, as it comes to consciousness, knows that it is created by God and dependent on God and should honor and thank God and should do the things that are written on the heart and that failing to do them is worthy of death. So this description of the Gentiles who don't have the law is applicable to all people who are without access to God's written revelation. No one will have an excuse. Nobody will be able to stand before God on the day of judgment and say, I didn't know. I didn't know this was wrong. I didn't know this was right. Everyone will have enough evidence against them to be held accountable for their sin. Well, some sin under the law. Some sin without the law. Finally, everyone will be judged for sin by God. Verse 16 is a continuation of the last point that he makes in verse 15. Whatever your conscience may do over the course of your life, no matter how well-trained or poorly trained it is, how much it vindicates you or how much it convicts you, on the day of judgment, your conscience will be used as a witness against your sin. And the day of judgment is coming. This is what Paul says. He just takes it for granted. He wants us to know this is certain. That day, it's fixed. It's known to God. It's a day when God will bring every one of His image bearers to account. It's the same day that he's, Paul's referred to in verse 5. It's that day of wrath. And Paul says, this day is connected to the gospel. You see that phrase in verse 16? According to my gospel. Some people want to separate the Bible's teaching about gospel from judgment. Some people would say, well, if we really believe in grace... God's love, the good news of salvation. Why should we talk about judgment? But the reality of God's judgment is what makes the gospel necessary. Sin separates us from God. It makes us His enemies. It puts us under His wrath. 
and in danger. It exposes us in a way that we cannot cover ourselves up. Leon Morris rightly says, the gospel does not preclude the thought of judgment. It indeed demands the the judgment indeed demands the gospel. It's what makes the gospel necessary. What is this gospel? Well, the gospel is the message of Jesus Christ. It's what God has done for us in Christ. All that Jesus is, all that he's accomplished, and the significance of that for us. So why did God become a man? Why did Jesus keep the commandments and resist every temptation? Why did Jesus volunteer to die on a cross? Why was there an execution outside the gates of Jerusalem on that day when the Lord Jesus, the Son of God who became a man, submitted Himself to be crucified? Why? Why was there a resurrection? Why does the Bible tell us us that Jesus is in heaven right now, ruling, reigning, interceding for His people? Why? Because there's a day of judgment coming. Because sin has separated us from God. Sin has left us contrary to the way God created us to be. Sin's caused us to turn in on ourselves and away from our Creator. And sin has left us under God's wrath and judgment. And we need to be saved. And the only way of salvation is this gospel. Many of you know this. Many of you are trusting Christ. You've been taught this. God's shown you this. And Jesus is your salvation. And you're saying that today. But there's some of you here. And you know it. You've heard it. But you have not turned from your sin. And thrown yourself at the mercy of Jesus. And if you do not. If you die. In your unbelief, your rebellion against Christ, friend, what awaits you is that day of judgment when God will bring everything to bear to vindicate His separating you from Himself for all of eternity. The good news is He's brought you here today to hear this, to consider this. Why did He send His Son? For people like you and me. So come to Christ today. Believe Him today. Trust the Lord Jesus today. And He will save you. And you will have God's wrath completely satisfied. You'll be reconciled to God. And you'll be made one through Jesus Christ with your Creator. The invitation is open to you today to turn from your sin and trust Jesus where you are, as you are. Young people, children, some of you heard this a thousand times. But it's not the hearer's who'll be justified. It is those who embrace Christ and then begin to live in obedience to His commandments. Are you going to trust Him today? Are you going to believe Him today? Take Him at His word today? He invites you. He calls you. Believe this gospel because the day of judgment is coming. Paul calls it my gospel, which is what every Christian has to call it. It wasn't secondhand to him. It can't be secondhand to you or to me. We must believe it. But do you see the way that Paul wraps this up? He says, God will judge even secrets. The secrets of men. The secrets of men. How hard do you work to keep secrets? What do you do to keep certain things unknown from other people? 
On the day of judgment, Paul says, God's going to open that box of your secrets. It's known to God. And He's going to bring your secrets into the light of His judgment. There'll be no place to hide. Nothing in your life that you'll be able to hide. You ever stop and think about that? What a day. You ever stop and think what it's going to be like on that day when God calls you to give an account for every thought, every deed, your secrets? What are you going to do on that day? Our only hope on that day is that we have an advocate. Our only hope on that day is that somebody will take our place. Somebody will stand in for us. And that is exactly what the gospel says happens for those who are in Christ Jesus. Do you see what Paul says at the very end here? God will judge the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. <laughs> this is amazing. The judge will be our advocate. The one who we are called to stand before is the one who will look upon us with pierced hands, with a pierced side, the one who shed his blood for all who are trusting in him. And yes, there will be judgment, but he will take everything upon himself. And those who are in Christ will not be ashamed. Those who are in Christ will have nothing to fear. Those who are in Christ will be completely justified, completely vindicated, completely forgiven. All for Christ's sake. On that day, when everyone is fairly judged by God for sin, the great hope that we who are in Christ will have is that we have a Savior who has died for our sin. There are three lessons that I want to call to our attention as we close in light of this truth. Brothers and sisters, think about your life in the light of this coming day. It's going to happen. It's on God's calendar. You were created for so much more than what so many people live for. What people chase. What people dream about. What people aspire to. You were made for God. Created by God for God. So grow in the knowledge of God. Turn from your sin every day. Remember Jesus Christ every day. And believe Him and take Him at His word and live according to His commandments. That's the path of life and joy for you. Secondly, think about this for our children, our young people. You know, we have children in our homes and in this church, and we want to provide for them, we want to do what's best for them. But given this truth, that they're made in the image of God, and there's a day of judgment coming, and God's going to judge everyone for their sin, given this truth, what is more important to provide for our children than the reality that there's a Savior for sinners and they must have this Savior or else they'll be lost forever? It doesn't matter what kind of education you give them if they miss Christ. It doesn't matter what they attain in sports if they miss Christ. It doesn't matter how successful they are in school if they miss Jesus Christ and are called to stand before God on that day of judgment and be judged outside of Christ because they have lived 
lawless lives. It ought to affect the way that we teach, think about, pray for our children, our young people. Thirdly, it ought to affect the way that we think about our friends and even casual acquaintances. Even people that you just meet that you've never known before, that you just bump into. Every person you know, every person you will encounter has been created in God's image and has the law of God that was inscribed upon their hearts. They have a conscience. They have thoughts that accuse them and excuse them. So what this means is that before you talk to anybody about their need for salvation, God's already been at work. God's already there. God's already created them in a way where they have some sense about these things. And if we believe in a coming day of judgment, there ought to be an urgency. There ought to be something that motivates us to to live with an urgency about seeing this saving message communicated to people. And whenever you talk to them, it's not like you're starting from zero. You're talking to people made in God's image. You're talking to people who know there's a God. You're talking to people who know that there's right, there's wrong. You're talking to people who know they don't even live up to their own standard. So you have an opportunity and an advantage to think about how God's already been at work because these are creatures made in His image. And brothers and sisters, may God make us urgent and compassionate, filled with love, filled with humility, knowing that when we talk to somebody who doesn't know Christ, the only difference between them and us is God in His grace has revealed Christ in us. So let's don't look down on anybody. Let's don't dismiss anybody. Let's don't think that we're better than anybody. But let's look upon everyone as a candidate for this amazing salvation that God has revealed in His gospel. Let's do what we can to communicate His saving grace to them because the day of judgment is coming. Pray with me. Father, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You for the way that You have revealed Christ to us as the Savior of sinners. We thank You for the truth You tell us about what our lives really are about and what's in store for us. We thank You for being honest with us about sin and judgment. Oh God, we pray that You would take Your Word and apply it to us deeply. Deliver us in this room from being mere hearers of your word. But may each one of us on that day be found to be recognized by the grace that is in Jesus Christ as doers of the word. For we pray in his name, amen.